0: Today, I chat with Brian Alston, the coxswain behind one of the most watched collegiate rowing videos on YouTube. A walk on with a stutter, Brian eventually steered the Dartmouth Varsity Lightweights to a silver medal finish at the 2011 Eastern Sprints and a bronze at the IRAs that same year. Listen to the Eastern Sprints race recording here now before we dive into his story.
1: Stella, take one light tap, two inches. Colin, Let's go there. Way enough. Way enough. Ready, Blade at three quarter slide. Ready? Yeah, ready? Colin, take one light tap. Ready? One more. Cornell, one more. Ready, Keep going. Amazing. Ready? One more. Way enough. My hand is down. Let's go to the way enough, Colin. Blades flat. Five. Cristela, light. Four. Way enough? Three.
0: Two.
1: Breathe and relax. One.
0: Attention.
1: Go. Complete. 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 Lengthen. Lengthen. Full stroke. Go now. 147. Two eyes up. Three sit tall. Four. Breathe. Five. Relax. Six. 46. Seven. Go. 8, that's it, grip, 9, 10, you're in the race, stop on it, go, stop on it, go, shift in 2, 1, Two forty-four. boom, set. boom, set. shift, side, sharp, 40, 5, seven, 6, smooth, 7, go, 8, side, 9, 39, 10, very good, now let's lengthen out over 5 on this one, log, go, Long. Go. Very good. 37. Hold it here. Holding our margin on Princeton. One seat up Harvard. Drop and push. Drop and push. Very good. Now, we're holding our margin on Harvard. Princeton has taken about a seat and a half. We're one minute in, approaching the 500. Keep your eyes in your boat. Eyes straight forward. Smooth. Drop. Smooth. Drop. Now you took one seat on Princeton, just on the lengthen. We're about a seat and a half done from Harvard, coming through the 500. Let's take a big five. Balfour. Swing it and go. Try those puddles. On this one. Take one seat. One. shot. Two. Shah, three. That's it. Squeeze. Go. Squeeze. Very good. Now, we're still in contention about a seat and a half down on Yale, 130 in. Stay smooth and sharp, smooth and sharp. Now, Dartmouth, we're coming up on this big move, Big Ten. There's blood in the water, you're hungry for this win. Get ready and go in two, one, go green on this one. Boom, one, boom, two, three, four, that's it five, climb through, six, push, seven, push, eight, smooth, grip, nine, ten, very good, now, 37, hold it here, lock, sit, lock, now, we're dead even with Princeton, let's lengthen out over five on this one, long, smooth, long, smooth, drop, smooth, grip, stable hands, ease and drop, now, we're holding our margin on Princeton, about two seats out on Harvard, they're taking their move, get ready, and go, stern, four, right now, stop on them, go, stop on them, go, push, 36, push, shot, five, now, we're a seat up on Princeton, two seats down on Harvard, drop and push, drop and push, Drop, stand, drop. Now, starbirds, you need to keep it together. Sharp to the water. Sharp and smooth. Sharp and smooth, very good. Now, let's take our big green light, power 10. You gotta go, just like with the heavyweights. In two, one, fire it up on this one. Log one, Log two, three. push, four, Push! Five! Three seats Princeton. Six. Climb through. Seven. Go! Eight. Push! Sharp! nine, ten, Very good. Now, coming up on the 500 to go mark. Stay quick out of the stern. Quick hang, sit. Quick hang, sit. Now, you've already crossed Yale once this season. You can do it again. You're not here for bronze. You're going for the gold. Get ready take a big five on this one quick hang one quick hang two climb through climb through push that's it now we're at a 36 coming into the last 500 smooth and drop smooth and drop half a length on Princeton smooth grip smooth grip. Now get ready, take a big length in ten to our sprints on this one. Boom, one. Bend the oars. Break the riggers. Crush. Harvard. Crush. Yale. Five. Smooth. Six. Smooth. Seven. Go. Eight. Very good. Grip. Nine. Now coming to the last 250. Drop. Push. Drop. Push, let's take five to build into the sprint on this one. Stop on them go! Stop on them go! 38! Hold it here! Push sit. Push sit. Now, Dartmouth, last 20 strokes for the seniors. Get ready and go on this one. Move one. Move two. Eyes up. Eyes up. Go, you're walking. Go! Go 39. 10 more on this one. Go walk. Go! Go! Heavyweight sprint! Push, send, push, send, go! Go! We're dead even with nail! Log send, log, send! Two! More! One! Two! Dead even! Easy! Easy. 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 Easy.
2: Easy. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Um, I've been a longtime fan. And since I did move to Seattle a year ago, um, I got the itch to um, become a coxswain again. So I've been I'm like coxing both on um, the competitive women's team and the competitive men's team at Lake Union um, here in Seattle for the past few months, and it's been exciting to just be back in a boat after all these years. Oh yeah, 100%. Lake Union was a lot of fun. I know at one point I, I was doing a little bit
0: of side coaching there with the masters. Um, I think they moved their their boathouse over to the shipping canal, so you probably have access to much better water. I'd imagine yeah. if you guys are going up and down the, the canal there. Uh, How's the weather been this summer for rowing? Have you guys gotten some good, some good miles in or, you know, I know summertime in Seattle. I mean, it's like, it's like Disneyland on the water. There's like seaplanes and there's, you know, a lot of recreational boats. Like how's, how's it been?
2: It's been pretty good actually. Um, Like we have practice at five in the morning, so it's not too busy at that time. Um, On the Saturday morning practices though, that's when things can get a little shaky, you know, with all the sailboats and the drunk people. So yeah, it's, um, mixed bad. it's definitely been an interesting place to cox you know i'm sure as you know like there's just so many distractions in seattle on the water and there's fish jumping out of the lake and all sorts of stuff so um it's been an adventure but a good one that's awesome yeah i
0: know one of the one of the boats that's kind of i don't know if it's unique to seattle but they're definitely popular is like a, a hot tub boat i don't i don't think they show up at eight in the morning i doubt i doubt that's the case but yeah, that's like basically what it sounds like. Imagine like a, a tiny, maybe 20 footer and in the middle yeah. of it is a hot tub and
2: it's driven by the people in the hot tub, I think. And yes. so yeah, a lot of that in the summertime. <laughs> I almost hit one of them last weekend because they weren't paying attention. and just steered right in front of, you know, our course. So yeah. yeah, we had to stop our race and, you know, our coach was yelling at them.
0: <laughs> well, other than that, what else are you working on these days? I think, you know, you'd been mentioning uh, the start
2: of a new company. So I don't know what's going on with that. Like my whole career since college in e-commerce, um, like like most recently was the CMO of a drink for breastfeeding moms, and decided to leave that company to start um like my own consulting firm. I'm like really focused on helping to launch and scale e-commerce startups, um, like like both online and also getting them set up for success in store, um, and also connecting them with capital. Um, so we do have um a a private family office that we work very closely with to invest in some of these companies. It's only been a month, you know, since we launched publicly, so it's still a very new venture. But overall, it's been um, a really exciting next chapter. That's wonderful. Are you based primarily in
0: the Pacific Northwest, or are you trying to be national, international? Kind of what you know. What's your focus in terms of geography
2: and what have you? Our focus is the whole U.S. Um, like, there's one brand that we're looking at in Canada as well, but yeah, primarily the, the U.S. Um, and the beauty of e-commerce and retail is, you know, like we can talk to them from anywhere, as long as we have a computer and a phone line. Um, so yeah, that's really been our focus. Gotcha. How does it feel to have your own, have your own business? It feels great. Actually, um, it's a little scary, you know, because it's like the first time, you know, it's like striking out on my own, but, um, it just feels right. And just like given all the feedback that we've gotten and, um, it's like how, I'm excited like a lot of the brands that we've talked to have been you know just to have this solution um just feels re- just really good actually where are you from originally i am a fourth generation san franciscan um so it's like born and raised in the city um like pretty much lived in California my entire life, aside from college, which I'm sure we'll like spend a lot of time talking about, and Seattle, where I just moved to last year, um, went to a, a startup high school, essentially. Like my first day of ninth grade was the first day the school opened. It was like a small experimental charter school. Um, you know, ironically had no sports at the school because it was too small. So I didn't have any sort of athletic background um prior to going to Dartmouth um but yeah it's like grew up in San Francisco had no exposure to rowing at all um yeah it was just a huge coincidence that I just like ended up in the sport so
0: you know I think it's it's worth mentioning here uh pretty early on you know this is something you and I had discussed uh prior to to the interview is um that you know and this is would be surprising for somebody listening who might be a coxswain or you know a coxswain in training or what have you Um, you actually had a speech impediment that you overcame and conquered early in your life. And one would think that somebody with that challenge in their life and coxing would be a really rare
2: combination. Can you talk a little bit about that, kind of the background of that? Yeah, sure. Um, I did grow up with a speech impediment. I stuttered. Um, It wasn't horrible. Like, there's definitely some people who I've met who can't speak at all. Um, but it was definitely a noticeable speech impediment. Um, it was not easy to overcome. I was in speech therapy for about eight years, um, like starting in elementary school and through middle school and then on and off in high school. Um, and then I still stuttered in college, which is important to point out. <clears throat> like, I feel like, um, like there was no speech therapy on campus, but I sort of had to just like learn how to speak in class and learn how to give presentations and of course be a coxswain which is a very verbal role and i'll never forget when my coach talked me into being a coxswain because i joined the crew team as a rower um and was way too small so i was going to quit and the coach was like hey how much do you weigh And I was like 125 pounds exactly at the time um and he was like you should be a coxswain not i was like sure i'll try it out for a few weeks i had no idea what a coxswain was and when he told me that it was a verbal role, I, like, I felt like this pit in my stomach. I was like, oh no, like they're going to find out that I stutter. Um. So yeah, it was definitely um, a very challenging thing to overcome. But ironically, it ended up being something that really helped me become a good coxswain, um, which we can spend a lot of time talking about, you know, exactly what I learned in speech therapy that I think, you know, empowered me to sort of, um, have a very distinctive way of coxing and speaking and identifying sort of the rhythm of the boat and controlling it with my voice.
0: Yeah, I was going to say this is, this is really unique. So, you know, you kind of laid out some things for us. You didn't really start this until college. You didn't start becoming a coxswain. So, yeah. but I mean, what even motivated you to stick with it? Because like you said, there probably was a fear in the pit of your stomach of uh, maybe I shouldn't do this. Like, maybe this is going to be too much. I mean, it's it's a challenge enough to just kind of be, you know, working with this impediment in college and like you're saying, just in classroom settings. And now you're going to put yourself in a position where you're you're that, under that much more pressure. I mean, really. Um, so how did you even make the decision to say, I'll do this? I mean, what, what, what kept you with it?
2: <laughs> sure. So I'll just like start with how I even um, just, like, found out about the sport in the first place. So during my freshman orientation at Dartmouth, I was sitting on the campus lawn just going through the like roster of all of the activities and i was planning on just doing the stuff i did in high school like student council and the newspaper and like those types of things and then this group of giants just walks up to me you know with a flyer um just like saying that i should come and try out for the rowing team at the time i was five six and 125 pounds and these guys appeared to be like seven feet tall so i was like i don't know if you have the right person like i know nothing about rowing um it's worth pointing out that i didn't know how to swim at the time i learned how to swim after i joined the team um and i was short but they were like just come you know who cares um at the time about a quarter of all the men on campus who were freshmen walked onto the rowing team and of course like many of them just dropped off but it was just sort of a thing that a lot of people did and i tried the the lightweight rowing team for about a week. I was not strong enough at all to like get through the calisthenics. So I was gonna quit. And then the coach, Brian Conley, he was the freshman coach at the time. He pulled me aside and was like, how much do you weigh? I told him I was 125 pounds. And he was like, you should be a coxswain. It's sort of like a team manager, if you will. And it's also worth pointing out that a few months before this, so at the very end of my senior year of high school, the, the varsity lightweights had just won Eastern sprints. So, all the Coxsins who had experience in high school all wanted to be on the lightweight team versus the heavyweight team who didn't have that sort of finish. You know, they weren't too hot <laughs> at that era. So, um, there was a shortage of coxswains on the freshman heavyweight team, even though there were more rowers on that team, than the lightweights. So, the coach was like, Look, you know, you should just go to that team. There's only one coxswain for three boats, you know, that just makes sense. So I went over there. Um, And to be honest, you know, it wasn't the best experience like socially, Um, but I'm pretty stubborn as a person. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to quit. I'm just going to try this out for a semester. I'm just going to see what happens. And I liked the sport just enough to sort of not quit. I was like, okay, this is actually pretty interesting. And, you know, I didn't have an athletic background, so it was interesting to sort of find the role of a coxswain, which was very unique in sports. It was sort of in a leadership role without being like, you know, the actual rower itself. Plus, I had a few friends who I made on the team, so it sort of kept me going. Um, and then it, like, wasn't really until my sophomore year that I, like, really fell in love with this sport. Um, I sort of continued through my freshman year, um, just sort of chugging along and not really getting any coaching, uh, which I'm sure most coxswains on this podcast can relate to. Like most coaches were rowers and they are like, hey, if you're a coxswain, you sort of have to just like figure it out or like learn on your own. So what I did when I went home for my freshman summer was I ended up um, back in San Francisco, and i just googled like what's the best rowing club in the area and it was marin rowing they had um an excellent master's program so what i did was i coxed there six days a week i would wake up at four in the morning i would carpool over to marin um and again like i didn't come from that sort of like background i went to a public school so like going over to this place where there were like aston martins and ferrari's park <laughs> in the parking lot and stuff was a bit intimidating at first, but um, there was a huge shortage of coxswains as there often is in master's programs. And even though I told them I was a novice and I was just there to learn, they like really welcomed me with open arms. Um, And they really taught me almost everything that I still know about coxing. These were guys who were former Olympians, former um, Eastern Sprints champions, like they were extremely elite athletes who still had that fire and intensity, even though they were well out of college. Um, and they really just like, taught me about like being a rower and being a coxswain. Um, they were super encouraging to me. Um, and the coach was a coxswain back at Berkeley when he was young. So it was interesting having a coach who was a coxswain and he taught me a lot of stuff as well um, that I can go into more detail about a little bit later. I mean, yeah, overall, you know, that was sort of my experience in terms of like getting started in the sport and then my sophomore year, just to wrap this up, like I mentioned, I was a total novice when I started and I feel like my freshman year, I made a lot of novice mistakes that unfortunately sort of permanently tarnished my reputation, I think with a lot of my peers. So they, regardless of like, if it was senior year or sophomore year, they sort of always saw me as like, okay, you're sort of the, you know, the freshman F up coxswain. Um, and then my sophomore year, even though I came back substantially better because I had been coxing for like Moran, it wasn't until I met the the then freshmen, so the people who were a year behind me, that I like realized I might have a future on this team because they didn't have that bias. And when I would cox for them, they overwhelmingly had positive things to say. Um, they were like, we really like your intensity. We like your style of coxing. Um, and they like really en- just like enjoyed having me on like their team when I would sort of like help them out. So that was like, okay, well, these guys are the future of the program. And if they like me and they're gonna be on the varsity team next year, I'll just sort of stick it out and see what happens.
0: Yeah, it's, um, you know, some of those things you mentioned, it's pretty common. Um, it's it's funny. I think that you could probably say that, and maybe, I think this philosophy would be disagreed with, and that's fair. But I think it's it's safe to say that the coxswain might be... I actually think the coxswain might be the most important position in the boat. Um, and it, I, you know, it might be convenient that I'm saying that on this podcast now. But I say that because so much can be improved with a unifying voice and with somebody who is essentially commit, like captaining the boat in terms of you know, course and movement, all those things, and so it's it's very interesting that at least in my experience would be very similar to yours, which is that most of the time, uh, coxswains, you know, we're able to get some help, but not a whole lot. A, a lot of times, a coxswain's existence is pretty Spartan. Like you, you really have to develop your own um, your own understanding of the sport and of what you're supposed to be doing. It's it's really like. Again, like you said, it was almost like the, the pre-qualifiers are, are you the correct height and weight? You know, Will you fit in the boat? You know, Can you see? Can you steer a boat? Can you eventually swim? Which I think actually you and I have talked about. You couldn't even swim when you started. So no. that wasn't even
2: apparently important enough. <laughs> a question they never asked. Because I guess they figured like no one would be crazy enough to be a rower and couldn't swim. Right. It, like, a funny story about that. So when I called home and told my mom... You know, hey, guess what? I joined the rowing team. She was like, Oh, is this like an indoor rowing team? <laughs> like, like on land. I was like, No, it's on the water. She's like, Brian, you can't swim. And I was like, Mom, don't worry about that. You oh, know, details, details. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll learn how to swim and the boats don't capsize and it'll be fine. Yeah. You know? right. Yeah. But I learned how to swim after I joined the sport, um, which is always a funny sort of like caveat that just shows that this really was a fish out of water <laughs> story for me. Like I didn't fit sort of the profile of a coxswain. Plus, I don't even think I mentioned earlier on, like, no, I am black. Um, and at the time I was openly gay on the team and I'm from San Francisco and went to the sort of hippie charter high school. So it was like probably the exact opposite of what the sort of standard profile of a coxswain was and still is, but it didn't really stop me. I was just sort of like, okay, I'm just going to keep going with it and. I fell in love with the sport. Like I distinctly remember the first practice, my sophomore fall, like pretty late in the fall where something just clicked and I started to understand what was happening in the boat. And I think it was like, okay, how do I tell the rowers what to do? I can't see their body. And I am not a rower myself, so I barely know the technique. And I realized that it was almost like a game of opposites where if I see their oar going up, it means their hands are going down mm-hmm. so when i'm telling them what to do instead of saying hey you're skying i need to tell them hey four seat raise your hands in two one on this one and then it worked and then as soon as sort of that clicked i was like okay i'm starting to get it now i'm starting to understand how all of these things are connected mm-hmm. because before that i was just sort of like trying to hang on for dear life <laughs> so to speak and just trying to like not mess up but i felt like at that point that was when i realized okay to your point being a coxswain can have an impact on the crew and it can have an impact on the speed of the boat and the unity of the boat
0: yeah yeah because even you know i think if we had a like a a physicist on, on the podcast with us talking about it and i'm not talking about anything incredibly advanced but you know one person in the boat meaning like let's say one rower um you know, no matter how strong they are, they will never be able to have that much of an impact on the boat pulling as hard as possible. Like what will actually have a much bigger impact on the boat speed as a whole, which is the goal anyways, is unity. It's just general unity. And even that can be kind of off, but it's gotta be generally close. So it's almost like the idea of like, we gotta have super quick catches. We gotta row this style or that style or what have you. Like almost nine times out of 10, if you just get everybody on the same page, you will achieve far more just doing that than a lot of other things after that. Um, You know, and if that's table stakes, if everybody actually is rowing the same way and is fairly synced up and what have you, then you can start talking about things like, okay, do we have enough power in the boat? Is our race plan enough? You know, et cetera. But the number one thing is like, are you guys just on the same page? Like, is everybody on the same page? And the person who can affect that the most really is the coxswain because the coxswain is like the coach in the boat. I mean, the coach can look at it and, and from the exterior and get a feel for it. But at the same time, like having somebody in the boat who can feel the movement of the hull in their hips, can actually see what's going on really closely, can even get feedback and hear it from the, from the people rowing. You know, yeah. that's why, I, you know, I'm, I'm not saying this just as kind of like, a I don't know, like a, a philosophical thing. Like I think very quite practically, if you have a very, very good coxswain, they can fix a lot of problems because they can work on the unity problem, which yeah. is the biggest one of all of this stuff. And so, yeah, it's just interesting that that's kind of how it worked out. So it sounds like summer of freshman year was, you know, let's get like, it it was like trial by fire freshman year. And then summer of freshman year was was like, okay, let's actually learn how to do this really, really well. Let's get like the fundamentals down. Let's get the foundations down. And you had a great situation for that. You know, I mean, I, you know, it's funny um, when you and I talked about this before, just to kind of echo your story. I, I really want to give a lot of credit to frankly master's programs, which I think actually don't get enough credit Yes. Because in a lot of ways, master's programs are, you know, the recreational and have you, and maybe they don't get the limelight. So one would think that, oh, we want to give a lot of presence and, and uh, support and what have you to like the high performance program. There's nothing wrong with that. But the amount of selfless support that comes from master's programs is really profound. You know, yes. for your situation, you know, you come into a situation where it's, it's a bunch of people who formerly rode. They're there probably more or less for the enjoyment of it. Like nobody's trying to go to the Olympics in a master's program. Everybody's there for just the love of what they're doing and to be healthy and fit and be around other people. And so it's already just a really good environment for that. And then on top of it, you had a good situation where your coach was actually a coxswain. I I had kind of a similar situation when I was getting into coaching where I was uh, at Princeton for a year interning. And one of of the best learning platforms was the Carnegie Lakers. Mm -hmm. Um, So anybody listening who might be from the Lakers, you know, I'll say it for the rest of my life. Thank you. Um, but you know, that was a really big deal because it was the same environment. You know, I was a younger coach, had a lot of stuff to learn and being around people who had been coached by a lot of people, frankly, and would kind of be willing to work with me on, Hey, you know, we didn't really understand what you meant by this, or this was good. Or like, this doesn't really help. This was really good stuff because then I could take that to other programs or, you know, in this case, the, the lightweight team or the heavyweight team or whoever I was working with and helping out with the Princeton, but a lot of that was supported by the Carnegie Lakers. Yeah, without them, I really don't know how things would have gone. And I don't think I'm the only one to have said that. I think that there's been a number of coaches that have gone through the Carnegie Lakers Masters Rowing Program uh, at Princeton and have the same would have similar things to say that it was a really good place to learn. And so, yeah, Masters programs I, I don't think can be over overvalued in any way. I think that they're they're frequently undervalued
2: for this exact reason. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's the wisdom. Like, just think of, like, how many cumulative years of rowing exist on just your average master's program. Then when you look at the elite ones, I mean, it's just unbeatable. Like, there was this one guy in the boat that I coxed. He won silver at the 1960 Olympics, and he was still, like, out there every day, you know, on, like, rowing. So it's just, like, incredible to learn from someone like that because of the decades of experience that he has, like just in rowing. And then when you add that to the other 20 or 30 people that you have access to on a daily basis, yeah. it's just an unbeatable thing. And to your point about the coxswain, I mean, of course I'm biased. you know. I, of course I think coxswains are important, but one of the things I've learned from both the master's program and then being a college athlete is in college, the coxswain is almost treated as an afterthought. You're sort of in this weird middle ground where you aren't a rower, but you aren't the coach. You're sort of in this like weird space, like this gray area where you often don't feel like you're truly seen as part of the team. And what I noticed, at least in my experience is like, if things go well, the rowers get all the credit, but then if you lose the race, it's the coxswain's fault, that was pretty much the opposite on the master's team. I feel like on the master team, the coxswain is seen as a critical part of the group, um, and a critical part of the team. And that's something that I'm experiencing now at Lake Union. Um, it's just been a great experience and I love masters rowing. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's kind of time to get
0: back into it. Um, now that we're even talking about it, it's really, <laughs> we we'll start looking around New York for some, for some opportunities in that. That kind of sets up, you know, the final few years of your coxing. Um, and the thing that precipitated this interview in the first place was a really, really cool post that you put up on LinkedIn. Um, which apparently this, this recording, this video and this recording, audio recording has been floating around for some time. You, it's, it sounds like LinkedIn just, it, it just got put up there. Um, it kind of is in a later phase, yeah. but it shows you coxing, uh, the Dartmouth lightweight varsity yeah. at the Eastern sprints to a pretty great result, um, you know, especially for the lightweight's history. And so I feel like a lot happened in between, you know, trial by fire to now I get the basics. Now I'm actually getting some traction my sophomore year, too. I'm in in the top boat and we're going to meddle with the Eastern Sprints. So everything from like the team dynamics to I would imagine your delivery, you know, what kind of a, a coxswain you were, what you learned, what you got better
2: at. Can you talk to us about that evolution? Can you tell us that story? Sure. So I guess I'll sort of go into the stuttering piece now and sort of the impact that had on my coxing because I feel like that's going to be sort of like what leads into the success I ended up having. So like I mentioned, I stuttered and I was in speech therapy for eight years. And one of the things that you, I mean, like when most people talk, they just talk. They aren't really thinking about what is actually happening in their throat or their body that's leading to the sounds that they're making. But when you're in speech therapy, you break down every single thing into different components. Like I spent a whole year focused on tongue placement, a whole year focused on enunciation. You know, you learn about the muscles in your throat. Like you learn how to be a technical speaker in a way that most other, like people just don't really think about. And because I spent a lot of time in a bow loader where I couldn't see the rowers, but I could hear the sound of a healthy boat versus a boat that's off. I could hear and feel if people's tracks are moving at different speeds. And again, this was all from Marin. So I could hear a good boat and a bad boat. I started to hear this sort of rhythm. It's like a cadence of like, this is a healthy boat. This is a boat that's off. And what I noticed is that when I would speak in a cadence that was aligned with that, it was almost like conducting the rhythm of the boat. That is what the freshmen heavyweights saw and heard from me that got them to row faster when I was their coxswain. I didn't realize this at the time, but that was what they liked. They were like, there's something about how you speak when you're coxing that makes us row better. And as time went on, I realized that was what was happening. I could hear sort of the acoustics of a boat and could align my vocals to that to have the intensity on the drive like right before you know the finish happens which is like when most of the power is happening and could sort of relax and like lengthen out my vocals on the recovery so that way sort of controlling the ratio of the crew and i wouldn't shout at the rowers or scream at them because i noticed when i would do that they're I'm like ratio would be off and it would become more frantic and you know, the drive would be shorter. Instead, I would sort of, again, speak in like a calm tone on the recovery and a more intense tone on the drive. And then as time went on, I started to sort of pick up on the minute places in the stroke where I need to do those things. And then a few other things about stuttering that sort of impacted this. One is when you're a stutterer, I mean, in order to avoid ridicule, You try to say as little as possible. So you're trying to sort of just tell people what you want them to hear in as few words as possible, which I feel like is a very important skill as a coxswain. Most rowers don't want to hear you talk too much. So I would just like be very good at sort of succinctly saying what needs to be said. And like, i mean, even when we would call power tens, it wouldn't be this long drawn out process to try to hype the rowers up. I tried to just sort of just make it super quick and to the point and you know i'll be sending over some clips from that video you know from like youtube to sort of just like highlight that um and then finally the other thing that is very interesting is um like stuttering itself is sort of a medical mystery like people don't know what causes it or how to fix it it's just sort of a thing that's always existed a lot of um, famous people that we know of have stuttered, um, like James Earl Jones. You know, the voice of Darth Vader and Mufasa. He stuttered so badly he was pretty much mute. I had so, no like, idea that was the case. Really, like, his childhood, and he still stutters. If you like, listen to some of his interviews. You, like you'll like, I mean, I can pick up on it because I can see sort of the blockage happened in his throat. But yeah, he stutters. Julia Roberts stuttered. Like Carly Simon. Like a lot of really famous people in. Arts and entertainment stuttered. And one of the things that they all mentioned, and again, I learned this in speech therapy, is when you sing or when you talk in sort of an accent or you talk in sort of a cadence, you don't stutter. And like when I sang in the choir growing up, I didn't stutter at all. So, what, so again, being a coxswain and learning how to talk in this sort of cadence, in this rhythm, helped me overcome my stuttering so it was sort of like this symbiotic thing where it helped me fix that and it helped the rowers row faster and better i mean i
0: didn't even i mean for just as almost like factoids i had no idea that those folks that you mentioned especially the voice of darth vader james Earl jones that he had a speech impediment because it's not like that was his only role i mean it's funny because his initial role was he was a he was the voice of that person but then after the fact i mean he was in a number of movies yeah where he's got speaking roles he's in person he's got people around him there's pressures there's stresses and yet somehow, you know,
2: he did great. That's so interesting that that's the case. He, he overcame his stutter by uh, like reading Shakespeare in class. Like again, like he stuttered so badly, he didn't talk to anyone other than his grandmother for about five years, like no one. And one of his teachers encouraged him to recite Shakespeare. And he realized when he was acting and speaking with what we now know of is his voice, his cadence. His rhythm that's very distinctive. He didn't stutter at all. So I feel like that was sort of something that like always stuck out to me. It's like, I'm not singing while I'm coxing, but I am talking in this sort of like unnatural cadence. You wouldn't talk to like a normal person in conversation with, but in a boat, there is a rhythm. There is sort of a music to it. And that's sort of what got me to like realize that was my thing. Like I can improve my on like my steering as much as possible i can like improve my knowledge of the stroke and my technical knowledge which i'll talk about in a bit um or sort of understand like the physics of the boat and all of that but my thing my sort of thing that sort of stood me apart according to all the other rowers was the rhythm that i spoke in it did unify the rowers And it made them have objectively better performance. I could see the splits go down. You know, I won my seat races. I sort of had a lot of quantifiable ways that it was able to impact the rowers, not only on the master's team, but also on the heavyweight team that I was still on at this time. Um, Unfortunately, despite all of that, you know, I wasn't in any of the top boats. I was always in the third varsity boat or the second freshman boat. If any boat at all. In my junior year, the boatman, so he wasn't even a coach, he was um, the boatman in the boathouse. He was a former coxswain at Wisconsin. He really pulled me aside and sort of coached me. Um, His name was Michael Lucy. Um, He was an incredible coach for the third varsity boat. He was sort of our coach because, you know, we were sort of left to our own devices. Um, And it was just an incredible experience, again, to have a coxswain. Teach me stuff, to just tell me what to do and what to say. So I felt like going into senior year, especially because again, I went back to Marin um, between my junior and senior year, I felt ready for my audition. I was like, okay, I can go in to senior year. At that point, I would be the, the only senior coxswain on the heavyweight team. And I assumed that just like all the years before me, I would be in the varsity boat or would at least be able to compete for the varsity boat. Um, unfortunately that never happened, um, for numerous reasons that I never really got a clear answer on, but the lightweight team who was for whatever reason, I'm like very segregated from us. Like, even though we were all men doing the same sport in the same boathouse, our teams never had any overlap at all. We never really hung out with each other socially. I barely knew the lightweight guys. Um, I had no idea what my reputation was with them. But when we were on our spring break training trip, I was sent to cox their third varsity boat. So instead of being with the heavyweights, even though I was a senior coxswain, and being able to seat race for a spot in the one V, I wasn't even put in any boat on the heavyweight team. So that was when I was sort of like, I mean, frankly devastated. Um, I called home, and I was extremely upset and unhappy, and I. I heavily considered just quitting the team um, my senior spring and just spending those last few months of college doing all of the other things that I couldn't do on campus from 4 to 7 p.m. every day um, because of crew. But my mom was like, no, you've come this far. If there's a spot on the lightweight team, you should go and talk to them and see if there's potential there. So I went to the lightweight coach after we got back from the spring break training trip. And I like flat out asked him, like, if I joined the, the lightweight team, would I have a fair chance at making the, the varsity boat? And he was like, Absolutely, of course. Um, the guys like really liked you when you were here, you know, on um like for spring break. Um, like everyone has a fair chance at the boat. Absolutely. And for me, my thing is if I got that chance and sort of had my audition, so to speak, and I messed it up, then I can live with that. You know, I could graduate from college and be like, you know what? Like, that's fine. But to not get that chance was sort of unacceptable to me. So basically I left the, the heavyweight team that day and I went to the lightweight team, I was in pretty much immediately put in the first varsity boat, <laughs> like literally 20 minutes after I left the heavyweight team, I was in the 1V for the, the lightweights. And this was on a Wednesday and every Wednesday for my entire four years, there would be scrimmage races against the lightweights and the heavyweights. So all of the boats would just like race each other on, you know, just like do like 1K pieces. And the lightweights had never beat the heavyweights um, at all my entire four years there. So I got put in the varsity lightweight boat. We do our 1V scrimmage and not only do we beat the heavyweights, but we crush them. And for it just felt like it just felt like a fairy tale the whole thing was just crazy to me but something about me and those other eight guys in that varsity lightweight boat just clicked everything just felt right in that boat the technique was good they really liked my style of coxing they admitted to me that they thought that I was gonna be horrible because I had this reputation in the boathouse of being sort of you know this f up. And they were like we don't understand where this is coming from like you're actually quite good yeah. <laughs> um yeah. so they were actually quite shocked to, um but the culture of the team was incredible um everyone they are like your point earlier was unified mm-hmm. it just felt like there was no competition amongst the guys um the coach dan Brook, you know who was a veteran at that time you know he was extremely encouraging to everyone um it just felt like really nice to be on a team like that. And again, to be given a chance. Um, we ended up, I'm um, like winning almost all of our dual races um, that year. Uh, and then we finally get to Eastern Sprints. You know, I was a nervous wreck because I was like, okay, like, wow, two months ago I was benched. And then now I'm here coxing the 1v at Eastern Sprints. Um, this voted one Eastern Sprints four years before, but for the three years that I was there, they hadn't, they were maybe in like sixth place or so. So there was no sort of precedent for us like like doing well or getting a medal, but we all just felt like there was something here. And I'll never forget that very last practice we had before Eastern Sprints. We were just doing our own thing, just like rowing, just like doing some practice starts. And we did like a starting five high 20 shift 10 and then weigh enough. And then I felt like the strokes were literally flawless. Like there was nothing off to the centimeter. And then as soon as we weighed enough, like everyone had their hands like down and away on the gunnel, the boat did not waver at all. It was completely set in the middle for what felt like 15 seconds. And then as soon as I called down, everyone's blades just plopped down at the exact same time. And there was like this moment of silence and then we all just sort of were like, did you feel that? And we all were sort of giddy because we felt this shared energy where it was like we were all sort of one. We were sort of this unit that was like greater than the sum of its parts. And it's worth pointing out that the boats we were going up against at sprints, you know, they had a bunch of Olympic rowers you know, and like all the stuff, and we didn't. So, you know, on paper, we shouldn't have had a chance at meddling, but we felt that we did. So we get to Eastern Sprints, and, yeah. you know, again, like I'll send over clips from the tape that well, a lot of people have seen. But, you know, we win our morning heat against Princeton, who was the only team that we hadn't had a dual race against. They were seated to come in, I think, second or third, and we were supposed to come in fifth. Um, uh, so we beat them and my whole thing was, do not leave here empty handed. Like that was my whole strategy for the race. So the strategy from a coxswain standpoint, wasn't to go for gold. It was to go for bronze, which meant as we cross the 500 meter mark, we need to be at least half a length up on Princeton and then secure bronze and then go for silver or gold. If there's an opportunity, but don't burn the guys out too much um too early and that's exactly what happened we pretty much just rode our race exactly to our own strategy we were half a length up on Princeton at the 500 meter mark and then um we were about I think three seats down on Yale who we had beat in the dual race and about half a length down on Harvard who was I'm like going for gold and in the final sprint you know I called you know um You know, the last 20 strokes for the seniors, you know, eyes up, eyes up. And like literally in those eyes up strokes, we started to take like a seat per stroke on Yale. And we were dead even with them probably for the last 15 strokes, um, like competing for that silver medal. And we pulled ahead of them literally in the final stroke. um, We never saw the photo finish, but apparently it was literally like inches. I think it was like 11 one-hundredths of a second. Yeah. And they finished Um, when their blades were just at the catch and we were on the recovery as we crossed the finish yeah. line. So our bow pulled ahead. Yep. So yeah, the whole thing was just crazy. Um, it didn't really hit us. We didn't know like what order we finished in until they called us up to the metal dock. And when they called us, yale then dartmouth and harvard that's when we were like wait do we come in second <laughs> the whole thing was just a blur but you know like you know because you've been on this metal dock, you know the whole thing is just crazy you know with all of the people all the fanfare um the whole thing just felt like a fairy tale to me because again of like to where i started and like how close I came to quitting the team a few weeks before this. And then to be here, um, it just was a, ma- a major turning point in my life. Um, and then, you know, like when we got to me, when I got my medal around my neck, the entire heavyweight team like erupted, you know, in cheers. And it just felt great, you know, that despite me leaving the team, you know, I still. S- like, see myself as a heavyweight. That's who I spent, like, three and a half years of my life with. Yeah. You know, the fact that, you know, it wasn't just, like, my medal. Like, they, especially the guys who were in the 3V and the 2F with me, like, like it was, like, as much theirs as mine as well, you know. And they were, like, extremely happy for me. It was just a, a dream come true. Yeah. That's awesome, man. I mean, like,
0: yeah. Talk about, talk about a finish after a, kind of a crazy four years of, up and down and learning and geez. I think it's something that would be kind of cool is to, to get pieces of that recording, or maybe just the entire thing. I might yeah. even put it on the podcast and just have people listen to it to get a feel for like how you sound, Kn- knowing what we talked about before in terms of how you kind of elongate, probably sort of elongate vowels or how you speak with sharpness or lack of sharpness, you know, just really modifying and your voice and yeah. the way and the rhythm of it so that it really it um it's kind of again like i said it's it's a rhythm that you would row to it's a voice that you would row to yes um and so i think when we have that playing for people i hope that folks will listen and be really thinking about how you're speaking not just the words because i think they can get lost um yes. you, know, you and i talked about this before that uh one of the ways that you had um learned about being a better coxswain was listening to coxswain recordings of coxswain's um who don't speak English, yes. which is really interesting because you'd think you'd need to understand what they say, but when you remove that variable, what's left? The only things that are left are how the words are being said. Yes, Yeah, and totally. And it's amazing how powerful that impact can be. Um, you know, you and I joked about this because I did I have spent a few summers helping out the U23 team with um, you know some world championships and stuff back when I was coaching. And there were a couple of times when, you know, we were on the course. I remember one time in particular, I was helping out. Um, actually, it was the senior man. I was just kind of along for, for helping. And we were in Lucerne and I was standing at like the boat, uh, kind of the boatyard, if you will, where all the racks are and everything. And, and after a race had finished up, I, I, I looked down to the left and it was the Italian guys. I don't know if it, what boat it was, but I could see them talking. And I couldn't understand anything that they were saying, like nothing, right? But I could sound, kind of see the gesticulations, like what the hand motions they were making, what how they were talking and stuff. And I realized they were kind of like, oh, they're talking about the catch. Yes, like, the catch is too hard, and I could tell just because the guy was like, he was the way he was saying it was just sharp and hard. He's like, no, it's got to be like this, more like this. Like we've got to kind of ease into the front end. And I'm like, oh, yeah, they're smashing the front uh, the front end, so they can't. You know, it's really killing their boat speed. It's, it's causing a lot of really bad check in the boat. Yeah. I thought it was so interesting, I'm like, oh, isn't that crazy that I really don't need to understand what they're saying? I can just tell by kind of what hand motions they're making and how they're saying it. And when you brought up the story about how you use that to learn the cox, but I thought that makes total sense. That can,
2: that connects immediately. Um, yeah, who totally. is who do you have any favorites? <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm pretty sure it's still on YouTube, but um, the 1996 Dutch national team, um, they had like a practice. Um, before the Olympics, where, you know, they recorded themselves. And again, I have no idea what he's saying, but I was listening to how he said it. Um, there's also, um, like, some really good ones, and I can try to find them if you want to include them in the show notes, but, like, I remember listening to this Japanese coxswain. Um, like, not the, like, national team. They were just, like, a random coxswain, but, like, I really liked how they spoke. Um, And, again, it just was very interesting. And I picked up on this because like myself and a few of the heavyweight rowers, we all studied abroad in Denmark on uh, my junior fall and we cocked, or it's like, it's like we went to the local rowing club and I coxed there. And again, I have no idea what they're saying, but I was listening to the other coxins and how they would speak. And I was like, okay, I really like that cadence, how they're emphasizing this part of the drive, how they're emphasizing this part of the catch, et cetera. And then from that point, I started to listen to other European coxswains and eventually like Asian coxswains. And I intentionally sought out ones who aren't speaking English for the reasons you mentioned. Um, so again, it's all these things that sort of like, you know, as tips to coxswains, you can do a lot of stuff on land to improve your like your knowledge. Um, and I highly recommend listening to coxswains in other languages. Um, ideally, as you're able to watch the the boat as well so you can see like like what part of the race or like what part of the stroke they're saying certain things in and then I'm not sure if US rowing's website still has this but they used to have like a bunch of PDFs from like old like rowing books, old rowing manuals about a range of topics and one of them that helped me was about the physics of rowing like the physics of how to move a boat And that was a very interesting thing just to learn during winter training. Because again, I'm not on the the water, I need to improve my skills. And when you learn about the physics of the boat, that tells you a lot about where to time your intensity. As you know, it's like the second half of the drive is really the power of the boat. So you want to have that part be very intense because you want them to exert as much power as possible from the leg drive and like, just like have like a clean finish and then the, the recovery is sort of when the boat is gradually slowing down and then the catch is like when it can check the boat down so what you want to do is time the intensity for when it's going to have the most impact on speed and to minimize the amount of check that's going to happen on that recovery and instead of me saying that like hey you're checking the boat down hey be faster. It could be something like quick hang, send, quick hang, send, like quick on the catch. And then it's almost like, instead of you telling the rowers what the problem is, you're just telling them what to do to fix it. It shortens the amount of words you need to say. And like if we wanted to get into sort of like tips for coxswains, I have a whole list here, but that was one of them. I was like, how do you sort of, Make everything you're saying either information or a command. I feel like you should like very rarely talk about problems where it's like, hey, set the boat. Hey, you're skying. Unless it's like during practice or something. But during a race, you should never be like like four seat, you're skying. You should be like four seat, like lower your hand one inch just before you get to the catch. So you're just telling them what to do to fix it. And I feel like that just shortens a lot of the ambiguity. It shortens a lot of the miscommunication, but it just took years to sort of understand that. And a lot of that came from reading these old growing books and manuals. So you said you have a list
0: of some suggestions for coxswains. Let's hear it. What are your, what are your top ones? Let's hear the most, you know, some, some big ones, some really sharp takeaways.
2: Yeah, sure. So just to recap, you know, what we've already discussed, um, like listen to Coxon's in, in foreign languages. Um, like everything you say should either be information or a command, ideally both. And like, if you can, I'm sorry, combine them, um, stop screaming and shouting that often leads to much shorter, strokes and the technique just like sort of falling apart you can talk in a very assertive tone and use volume but if you're screaming and shouting at the rowers in my opinion it leads to more issues than it's worth and you like talked about this earlier you know it's like sometimes it's better if there's slightly less power but you're actually just like in full like unison the boat is gonna actually go faster and get to the finish line faster versus tons of power, but then their like recoveries are terrible or their like their catches are like sloppy because the coxswain sounds too frantic. Um if you're in a bow loader and there's sort of like clear like path in front of you, there's no obstructions, close your eyes and listen to the boat. Listen to the rhythm of the boat. And you can really start to hear and feel the health of the boat. You can feel if like people's wheels are not getting to the front end at the same time, you can hear the splash of the catches and the puddles and like all of these things that again, when you're looking at it in an eight, you aren't as close to it, you're a little bit removed from it, but in the bow loader, that's where I learned the acoustics of the boat. Because you're literally like so close to the water, you're in the boat. That's when you can start to pick up on how to use your voice to conduct the rowers to that same sound, if that makes sense. Keep a dossier on your rowers and the coaches, especially if you're a master's coxswain, like sometimes you'll have multiple coaches who have totally different styles, different techniques, different preferences. I kept a notebook where I kept notes on each of the rowers, like not just in terms of like the technical stuff that the coach said were their areas of improvement, but also how do they like to be motivated? Like some rowers, you need to remind them of certain things. Some rowers just want you just to be super intense. Some rowers need silence. Like each person is different. And if you sort of have this like dossier on each of them, And you figure out some way to have one unifying style that sort of just works with everyone. I feel like that is always something that's good. Like I always try to sort of customize my coxing to each boat I'm in to an extent. It's impossible to be like a hundred percent customized, but, you know, just like keeping those notes always really helps. Um, Do your homework on land. There is a lot that you can do, especially nowadays with Reddit and with YouTube and a lot of like rowing tutorials online, where you can learn a lot about rowing without being in a boat. Um, and especially if you're someone like me who was in the launch or often in boats that, you know, like did not have the most senior rowers to tell me like what to do or say, like, unfortunately, like as a costume, you have to just take it up on yourself to like do that homework and learn everything you can about rowing. So that way, again, you can learn how to tell people how to fix things. You can say, okay, the boat is down to one side. Here are the four possible things that could be causing that. Then as you look at the different oars, you can sort of identify that, okay, four seat is doing this, here's what I need to tell four seat to do to fix the the set issue in the boat so it's like it's almost like having a notebook where it's like here's the problem that is happening here are some of the possible solutions to the problem here's what you as the coxswain will see that can help you diagnose the the cause of the problem if that makes sense and it's sort of just like making like a notebook with all of those those cues all those things um and then, yeah, finally, I'm like studying the physics of rowing. If you understand how a boat moves fast and what slows it down, I think that that really helps you as a coxswain figure out how can you impact that? How can you impact the speed of the boat, like having as just like long of a drive as possible by, you know, ha- but, like encouraging people just to get that extra half an inch of puddle each stroke, which all adds up. How can you minimize the check in the boat? Like, how do you minimize people just look just like hanging at the front end and hesitating, you know, before they put their blade in? Just things like that, like sort of like knowing those things, in my opinion, is critical to like getting the boat to go faster. And then just in terms of like the personal piece, you know, I would say like one thing that really stood out to me from my story was like always like betting on yourself. You know if you have the passion for something and you like put in the work to like really you know just like be the best you can be at it and you think that you have potential don't quit just keep going um and find a way to have that value be seen and like noticed i recorded every single practice in every single race that i had and i would get feedback from the rowers i would send it to them i was like hey like I'm like, what are your thoughts on this? Like, I would play the tapes back, you know, I'm like, as I was walking in between classes and be like, okay, I said this wrong or, oh, I really liked that. You know, I kept a notebook of here's all the things that I said that seem to have a positive impact. You know, it's almost like treating yourself like you're an athlete and not seeing yourself as like, oh, I'm just the coxswain, if that makes sense. I think that the rowers do the same thing. They know they're splits you know for their 2k prs they know you know their seat races they know all those things so i feel like coxswain's need to sort of treat themselves like that as well and that also gives you your um portfolio so if for some reason you're like me and you have to leave the team you're on to go to another team you'll already have all of those things in place that's why i was able to just join the lightweights and be in their one v in 20 minutes Because I'd already done all that work before I got to the team. It wasn't like I had to sort of like learn how to be a coxswain before. Yeah, but yeah, like I feel like I can go on and on about this. But those were sort of my like big takeaways for coxswains.
0: I love it. And I think honestly, that list is is pretty awesome. And I hope that uh I hope that people will continue to reference this podcast, not only for the story, which I think was really great. I'm I'm very thankful that you shared it with us, but also, you know, a good example of a great race being done and some, uh, some awesome takeaways. Again, like you said, that like we talked about early on, coxing can be a self-taught discipline. Um, And yeah, it's one of those things that, uh, that we probably need more information out there for younger coxswains to learn from. Um, And so I think this is going to be a, an amazing resource for them hopefully for a very long time so brian thanks so much for for joining uh, and for telling us your story
2: yeah thank you so much for this i'm like an incredible podcast and i'm excited to like be a resource to coxswains i in any way i can absolutely i appreciate it we'll talk to you soon thank you bye